Meghan Markle and the role of royal consort. In June 1625, a 15-year-old girl stood on the shore at Boulogne, letting the waves lap her feet. The French princess, Henrietta Maria, was excited to be catching the ship that would take her to England as a consort of their king, Charles I. It is a haunting image of a carefree innocence before she was brought to a new shore and to the judgment of the British people. As Meghan Markle has already discovered, that judgment can be harsh. When Meghan's relationship with Prince Harry first became public, he felt forced to complain about abuse and harassment, sexism and racism. Friends of Meghan's observed that it was disappointing to see her judged an outsider as other. Racism was suspected, but England has one of the highest rates of interracial relationships in the world, with one in ten raised in mixed-race families. The focus on race underestimates the extent to which the other is actually tied up with Meghan being American. One newspaper complained last year that Meghan had failed a test on Britishness in a quiz for Dave TV. She had scored only four out of 15 points, proving unable to translate Cockney rhyming slang, how many people can, and choosing Vegemite over Marmite. Although the United States is a friendly power, it is also a great power, against which we can feel perhaps a little inadequate. A lot of people dislike Marmite, but choosing Vegemite risks offending our sense of national self-worth. Meghan has attempted to address this, announcing she is becoming a British citizen and even signing up to the Church of England. It won't be enough. Prince Philip has complained that when he married the Queen, he was always treated as a foreigner, even though he had fought for Britain in the war. In the satire-spitting image, which ran until 1996, he was teased as Phil the Greek, demanding to be served taramasalata. We must hope that poor Meghan doesn't feel she must be photographed eating jellied eels to gain our favour, or find it necessary to name her first child Dave. But being seen as other can have serious consequences, as it did for Henrietta Maria. And there are lessons in this past for Meghan today. The study of our history is like the psychoanalysis of a nation. There are past events and false memories, stuff we've been told, absorbed and half-forgotten, that shape the way we think now. Attitudes and prejudices have been hardwired into us over hundreds of years, creating patterns of thought we're not always aware of. Some relate to gender, others to our royal heritage. Charles I's Queen proved to be a loyal wife after her arrival in England as his bride. Lovely creature, with large black eyes, she fulfilled the principal duty of a Queen consort, which was to produce male heirs, and so ensure that there could be a smooth transference of power on the death of the King. The entire purpose of monarchy was to create a secure environment in a pre-democratic age that would keep harmony between subjects and allow the exercise of justice, as well as to foster national pride. It was a duty Charles I was destined to fail to live up to, and under his rule, England would fall into civil war. Henrietta Maria gave up the comforts of life in a palace to ride with an army against her husband's enemies. No other spoilt princess of Europe faced the dangers she did in 1643 when she sheltered in ditches from shellfire that blew men to pieces only yards away from her. 
A cache of never previously published royal letters, kept under lock and key at Beaver Castle, and to which I was granted the first full access, revealed the living voice of a woman described in France as a beauty who was every inch the child of the great warrior king Henry IV, and not just in courage. Like her father, it was said, Henrietta Maria had infinite wit and a brilliant mind. Yet this is not how British history remembers her. In common with Prince Harry's mother, Diana, Henrietta Maria was, and is, condemned for her girlish histrionics, while at the same time being depicted as an aged and hideous seductress, just as Prince Charles's current consort Camilla once was. The first lesson from history is to grasp the persistent importance of that mysterious force, myth. Living as we do in a secular, post-machine age, it is difficult to understand the working of story. But successful royal figures have always embodied a myth, one that helps to decide their significance in our lives. The story attached to Henrietta Maria was to be a story of division and threat. Positive myths, by contrast, reflect the purpose of monarchy to promote national unity and pride. Our current queen, Elizabeth II, as a survivor of World War II and our longest ever reigning monarch, has come to embody a myth of national resilience and stability. Elizabeth II is a thread that runs through the fabric of our individual pasts and whether we are monarchists or republicans, that has meaning. Less is expected of a royal consort than of a monarch, but much is expected nonetheless. And these expectations are also rooted in a duty to bolster national self-esteem and harmony. The former means the British expect dignity in their royal consorts. We were horrified by the antics of the Duchess of York and her toe-sucking boyfriend, witnessed by the world's press. Having her as a royal consort was like being shown up at school by an embarrassing relation. But Fergie was never hated. She was never a divisive figure, as Henrietta Maria was. Unfortunately for the 15-year-old, who had arrived in England in 1625, Henrietta Maria was perceived not merely as foreign, but also as a child of the enemy. In Europe, a Protestant rebellion against the Catholic Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor had triggered the Thirty Years' War, and Britain's fellow Protestants in Europe were losing. Although the Catholic French would join Protestant forces against the Habsburgs, Charles I's political enemies missed no opportunity to associate his French-born wife with Protestant suffering. This was less the fault of Henrietta Maria, however, than it was a consequence of the policies of her husband. The post-Reformation period had seen the development of new religious justifications for violence. Catholics justified overthrowing or killing Protestant monarchs, and Protestants justified overthrowing not only Catholics, but also those they deemed the wrong kind of Protestant. Charles's father, King James, had responded with his famous theory of the divine right of kings, that monarchs drew their right to rule from God, and so only God had the right to overthrow them. Charles I had proved to be a young king of energy and action. His was a cinematic imagination, and he used the visual, a theatre of court ceremony, religious ritual and beauty, to shape a socially deferential and hierarchical society appropriate to divine right monarchy. In English churches, parishioners had witnessed a move away from a stripped-back form of Calvinist Protestantism, which focused on sermons and impromptu prayers, to ceremony and music. Some liked it, 
Others believed it threatened the Church of England's Calvinist traditions, that it was the wrong kind of Protestantism. Meanwhile, successive military failures saw the fear of Catholic triumph becoming more acute. The breakdown in trust between the King and his opponents in Parliament led to him ruling without one for 11 years. Eventually, the split became the Civil War that saw more people die in England as a percentage of population than in the trenches of World War I. Charles would pay for this failure with his head, executed in 1649 at the hands of his own subjects. But for much of this time, it was Henrietta Maria who was the more threatened. To raise support for their side of the conflict, Charles's opponents had ramped up fears of Catholics. A new fast-moving media of print deployed fake news and exaggerated accounts of atrocities against Protestants in Ireland, while Henrietta Maria was trolled as the Papist-in-Chief. This was the starting point for the propaganda that shaped a reputation that remains in the eye of a storm of sexist tropes. And the attacks made on Henrietta Maria are recognisably the same as those used against royal consorts and all sorts of prominent women today. In biographies of Henrietta Maria, it sometimes seems she is never allowed to grow up from the child bride of 1625. She is depicted as silly and petulant, a reflection of the belief drawn from ancient Greece that women are creatures of emotion, not reason. The word hysteria comes from the Greek for uterus, the source supposedly of women's extreme and uncontrollable mood swings. Diana was also said to be mad when she complained at her treatment at establishment hands. And every woman knows that to raise her voice in a formal argument is to risk being condemned as strident. David Cameron, as Prime Minister, reminded us of this danger when he asked the MP Angela Eagle in a debate on NHS reforms to calm down, dear. Conversely, the childish Henrietta Maria also shares Camilla's fate in being condemned as an old bag. In one work of history published only last year, a remark about Henrietta Maria's teeth projecting from her mouth like javelins from a fortress, which was made by an unfriendly relative in 1642 when she was ageing and ill, is used to describe her as a girl in 1625. And there are biblical roots to this kind of attack. It was a woman, Eve, who brought evil into the world by persuading Adam to bite from the apple against God's command. The message we have absorbed is that behind a seductive woman lies evil, so the face of the lovely girl morphs into the witch crone. In the narrative of Charles's enemies, Henrietta Maria has supposedly persuaded him to become a Euro-Catholic tyrant in Protestant parliamentary Britain. She had, in short, seduced him into evil and was the true wearer of the breeches. The fact that Meghan is a few years older than Harry could one day also be used against her, with her age used to suggest a power shift. Madame Macron, the older consort of the President of France, has been depicted in cartoons bossing around her husband who is dressed in schoolboy short trousers. Meghan has already had a taste of this in the newspaper columns of Boris Johnson's sister, Rachel. The impeccably upper-middle-class Johnson decreed that Meghan had failed her mum test. In this, she relegated Harry, who saw military service in Afghanistan, to the place of a vulnerable boy, and Meghan to a rather different role. Miss Johnson first made a misjudged attempt at flattery, describing how Meghan would thicken the watery, 
thin blue blood and Spencer pale skin and ginger hair with rich and exotic DNA. This was taken as a poke at race, but it could also be seen as a coded reference to class. The blue blood of the aristocrat versus the dark skin of the field worker. She went on to warn Harry that Meghan is a bolter, a divorcee, later adding, after Harry attempted to defend Meghan, that his girlfriend was three years older than you, a TV star and a self-described brash American in no need of his gallantry. It seems that Meghan, too, is a wearer of the breeches. Harry imagines his actual mother, if she was still alive, would be jumping up and down with excitement over his engagement. And indeed, Diana would have good reason to do so. Prince William's wife, the middle-class Kate Middleton, is accepted rather than adored, as the aristocratic Diana was. But this is not merely a matter of class. It is because Kate gives the impression she would rather be at home being a mum than out supporting her charities. Diana was loved for reaching out to those in pain, for seeming to know and understand suffering. Meghan's success will depend on her empathy and her ability to bring people together. Here the stars are surely aligned, just as Harry says they were when he met Meghan. Foreign-born consorts have been the norm in historical terms, and while some, like Henrietta Maria, have had the misfortune to become political footballs, others have been embraced for their personal qualities and goodness. Meghan has demonstrated a strong social conscience and has been described as a true humanitarian by the charity campaigners she has worked with. In her warmth and the happenstance of her mixed race and her marriage is the potential for a new royal myth, a symbol of unity between past and present and between Britons of different heritage and race. She is a royal consort for our time. If you are interested in learning more about Tudor and Stuart royal consorts, you may enjoy Tudor, The Family Story, my biography of the dynasty, and my latest best-selling book, White King, Charles I, Traitor, Murderer, Martyr. You are also welcome to contact me via my website, Facebook or Twitter. Twitter.